Good morning. Greet each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here again to worship with you this morning. Invite you to turn this morning to the book of Titus. We'll specifically be looking at just a couple of verses in Titus chapter 2. But thought I'd give just a very, very brief uh, background on the book of Titus. Titus's book that was written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Titus. Titus was a uh, he was Paul's protege, so to speak. He was working under Paul's uh, direction. Paul had left him on the island of Crete with instructions to to work there, and this book is full of instructions that Paul had for this young minister. Things that he wanted uh, Titus to be teaching the believers there at Crete. And as we look at the book of Titus, it's pretty clear that there was some things going on in the church at Crete that Paul felt strongly that some things needed to be addressed. And one commentator that I read uh, surmised, I'm not sure if he was right or not, but he surmised that maybe the church in Crete had a misunderstanding of the gospel and of the grace of God, and they, they had not connected the fact that God's offer of salvation and His grace to them needed to be connected to their daily personal lives. And in looking at that, I was impressed. This is just a little bit of a side note. Chapter 1, verse 16. I had one of these verses that I've read many times, and this just jumped out at me new. This uh, was actually, I think, this morning when it, when it, this jumped out at me. He's speaking about the, the believers there in Crete, and it says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. So they were living lives of professing to know Christ, but their life was not demonstrating that He had, that he had made a change in their life. You ever hear anybody say that it's just the heart that matters? How we live doesn't, doesn't matter? Right here is a verse that you can go to to refute that argument. Paul is saying that they, they profess to know God, but their, by their works, by their actions, that they were denying that they knew Him. It is important that we live a changed life. So in this book, we have a lot of practical instructions, things that are applicable to our daily lives. And so I want to look at just a couple of verses uh, this morning that stood out to me. In fact, they're some favorite verses of mine. In chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. 
And this, this follows directly after he had given a lot of direct instructions to, to how people were to live. Things that Titus was to be teaching. He says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So we have four verses here. And in these four verses, Paul mentions, uh, I, see, I see three points, three things that Paul's pointing out. He points out, out some things that we need to get rid of. He points out some things that we need to have in our life as Christians. And he also points out the reason for doing it. First thing I want us to notice is that he doesn't just say that here's some things that you're supposed to change in your life. He doesn't say that it's just because Paul said so. And he doesn't say that we have to just do it on our own power. But before he gives instructions as to what were the changes that we're supposed to make, he introduces us to the power that makes us able. The power that enables us. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God. I want us to think about that this morning. Have you ever felt like that it was almost impossible to bring about the positive change in your life, in a spiritual sense at least, maybe sometimes in a physical sense too, if we're trying to develop a, a, a good habit and get rid of a, an old habit, bad habit. Have you ever felt like that it's almost impossible to embrace the change that you know that you need to make. I think we've probably all been there. I know I have. I know I've struggled before with something that that I just felt like I was almost powerless to overcome. But here he tells us that we don't do it alone and only by our own strength. But rather, it's through the grace of God. So what is the grace of God? I want to think a little bit about that concept. Grace is, uh, in a broad sense, grace is unmerited favor from God. So anything that we, any good that we experience from God comes is a, is a product of God's grace to us. But I've heard grace defined, God's grace defined in such a way that basically it describes God's grace as just simply God overlooking our sins and our failures. And you know, in that definition, God's grace is powerless 
to help us to overcome sin, and it's powerless to help us to become more godly, to become more like Him. Because it says that God looks at us through the eyes of grace and He just ignores all of our sins and our failures. It makes it that God's grace is only about getting people to heaven. It's not about making us more godlike and changing our character. So I looked up in my Merriam-Webster dictionary a definition of grace. Because sometimes that gets interesting when you look in a uh, secular dictionary uh, for a definition of a religious term. Sometimes you're pleased and sometimes it's it's uh, more interesting than others. But they had a lot of different definitions for grace. And there was a definition that fits in that idea of God simply overlooking our, our sin. It said a, grace is a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine grace. So in other words, we're sanctified because of God's grace, and, and that's just what it is. God pours His grace out, and we're made holy. We just enjoy the results. And there's, there's a certain amount of truth in that. But it's the idea of name the name of Christ, and God's grace is going to sanctify you, and that's all you need to do. But God's grace is much, much more than that. Paul here is talking about, or is describing something greater. It's a grace that enables. It's a grace that empowers. Empowers us to live new lives, changed lives. I was pleased that Merriam-Webster also had another definition that fits with that idea of an empowering grace. It also said that grace is unmerited divine assistance given humans for their regeneration or sanctification. So it's unmerited. We haven't earned it. It's poured out upon us by God as we accept it. It's divine. It's from God. And it's assistance given for our regeneration or sanctification. See, the big difference there is that it puts responsibility upon us because it's assistance that comes from God to help us to make the changes that He is asking us to make in our lives. Changes to bring us to, to a state of, of being holy and sanctified more like the Master. You've probably heard the term before, cheap grace. That's what we're talking about in that first definition. Believe and that's it. But that's not the definition that I see the Apostle Paul giving here. I see the Apostle Paul giving us a picture of God's grace that 
instructs us, that guides us, that empowers us to become more like the Master. We also see here in these verses, verse 11, it says that that grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And I'm not going to go into that all men, but I think that means that it is available to all. None of us are outside of the realm of God being willing to pour that grace out upon us as we come to Him and we seek Him and we pursue that grace. But in verse 12, it tells us what that grace does. First thing that it says that God's grace does is that it teaches us. That word in the original Greek has kind of a multiplicity of meanings. One meaning is that it educates us. But it also has somewhat of a meaning of discipline as well. So I believe that God's grace educates us. It, it helps us to understand the deficiencies that I have in my life and the changes that I need to make to become more like the Lord. But it also has an aspect of, of discipline, of training. As I thought about that, I thought about our formal education and our schooling. And I've pondered before, you know, when you're in school, you see all this schoolwork and learning and quizzes and tests, and it seems never-ending. Then you get out of school and you start wondering, well, what was all that stuff worth? You know, am I really going to use what I learned? And I came to the point in my life looking back that I realized that one of the greatest things that we learn in school is discipline. And I think sometimes that the facts and the figures are a vehicle for us to learn discipline. Those facts and figures, children, do come in handy later in life. Trust me. You end up using things you had no idea that you would use. So God's grace doesn't just instruct us. It doesn't just say, here's a deficiency in your life. You're wrong. You must change. It also gives us the discipline and the help that we need. Not just setting standards and expecting us to do it on our own strength. We also see, see here in verse 12 that it teaches us to deny. See, that, that's right there along the lines of discipline. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So see, there's, there's the negative instructions in this section. There's a negative and there's a positive. And he starts out with the negative. In this verse is, is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. And I, I love how the NIV renders this verse. 
Then IV says that it teaches us, speaking of God's grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It teaches us to say no. Again, it has to do with discipline. It has to do with a change. But again, we don't do it on our own. God's grace is there and sufficient to help us. And that's really the thrust of what I want to think about this morning as we think about grace and what it does for us. And I, for a, for a title for my message, and this is the title of a book that I have not read, so I'm not endorsing it. But I use the title, The Power of No. Paul gets into this in these verses then, a little right after this. But there's things that as believers we are called to say yes to. Things that must be a part of our life if we're going to be faithfully following the Lord Jesus. If we're going to be pleasing our Heavenly Father, there's, there's things that we must have in our life. Things we must be cultivating. He says here that we're to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Characteristics of a child of God. Soberly doesn't mean that we as believers should never laugh and have a good time. But rather it's talking about our attitude of life. That life is serious. Realizing that this life is a preparation for all of eternity. And that we we use every moment of every day to prepare and to help others to prepare. Life taken seriously, not lightheartedly. He says here that we should be righteous. That refers to, in my words, right living. Living according to God's standards, not according to man's standards. And godly is simply to be like God. And that's a high standard. But it's a standard that as children of our Heavenly Father that we are called to. How many of you all have know of someone that when you see that person, you're, you're just absolutely flabbergasted at how much they resemble their parent? one of their parents. Uh, I know a few people like that. One comes to mind in particular that he's just about a car carbon copy of his dad. That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to have his character. So we're to be godly. It's a high calling, but it's what God expects. So how do we do those things? How do we make them a part of our life? How do we, how do we live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age? It's a struggle that we all face. And if you're like me, you read Scripture and sometimes there's something that God impresses on you and you wonder, how, how, 
How can I do that? How can I become better in this area? And I want us to consider this morning that in order to say yes to these positive things, in order to say yes to positive godly changes in our lives, to embrace the, God, the life that God calls us to embrace, there's one important thing that we must do. And that is that we must purpose, as verse 12 teaches us, we must purpose to say no to anything and everything that would take us in the opposite direction. I've been challenged in the last couple years with that concept of the power of saying no. We don't like to focus on the positive. We like to focus, I mean, excuse me, on the negative. We like to focus on positive things. But we need to realize that every time that we say yes to something, we are saying no to countless other things. To illustrate that, I'm going to say that if Philip invites me this morning to come over to their house tomorrow evening, and sit around the campfire. And I say, great, Philip, we'd love to do that. We'll be there at 6.30. I have just said no to any other possibilities that come along. And so every yes is a no to something else. At work, when we say yes to taking on a project, we're saying no to other projects that have to fit in that same time slot. In my life, if I say yes to something that appeals to my flesh, I'm saying no to the things of God. See, you can say no to the things of God without, without verbally saying no. You say no to the things of God when you accept the things of the world, and the things of the flesh. God makes it clear in His Word that if we're living according to our fleshly nature, that it's impossible to please Him. We have told Him no if we're living according to our fleshly nature. And I'm not going to turn to it, but you can read that in Romans 8.8. 8. So, as we look at these verses, we see that Paul gave the negative first. He says that we're to deny, ungodly, deny ourselves ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then he gives the positive of what we're supposed to put on in our life. Why is that? I believe that it's because, first of all, for the grace of God, we must say no to the things of the world and the flesh before we can successfully say yes to the things of God. Now this whole concept of, of saying no is a concept that applies to all areas of life. And just to help us to understand that, I want to give some examples of two well-known men who understood that concept. Probably... Most of you all here know who Warren Buffett is. If he lives a few more months, he'll be 93 years old. He is 
one of the richest men in the world. I didn't look up and see where he stands currently, but he, for many years, has bounced around to be around the richest, uh, second or third richest man in the world. And it's very interesting what he says brings success, true success. Now, he's talking about from a business standpoint, from a standpoint of monetary investment. But the principle's the same. He said this, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. So what he's saying is that in life, we have all kinds of opportunities and to be truly successful, we have to say no to everything except the very few, very important things. Now remember, he was speaking about business success and making money. But for us as believers, what is the most important thing? It's serving our Lord. And so we must say no to everything that would get in the way of serving Him. Another businessman who understood that concept was the late Steve Jobs, who was co-founder of the Apple Corporation. He said, people think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that are there, you have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things I have done. Innovation is saying no to 1,000 things. See, the Apple Corporation is, is held up as an example in the world today as, as far as business model and what they have done with their product line. And Steve Jobs was saying that their success was because they said no to so many options and focused on what was good and what was important. These two secular businessmen understood that concept and it served them well. But do you and I understand the power of saying no, the power spiritually of saying no and the necessity of saying no? If we're going to be successful in our Christian life, we must have a singular focus on serving the Lord and becoming more like Him. And we must say no to everything that would hinder. We're reminded of that in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Here we're told that we must lay aside, we must say no to everything that would weigh us down, everything that would hinder us. You know, if you're going to run a race, and I believe that Franklin's kind of training for that, there's some things you do you practice, you get out there and you run every day or almost every day. You have a, a rigorous training regiment. 
you want to have a good diet. You need to have energy reserves so that you can push through. You want to get enough rest. There's probably some other things. But you plan, you get you 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 do all the right things. But if you did all those right things, and the day that you were going to run a marathon, that morning you got up and you strapped a backpack on that had a hundred pounds of rocks in the back. All of those good things that you had done would be absolutely worthless. Because that backpack full of rocks would hold you back and weigh you down and you would probably finish last. See, you have to say no to the the extra weight, the things that would hold you back. And I need a continual reminder in my life of the importance of that concept of saying no to things that would hinder me, that would lead me astray, that would take my focus off of where it needs to be. And I believe that that includes saying no to things that aren't necessarily sin issues. There in Hebrews 12.1, he talks about the sin which doth so easily beset us. But before that, he said, laying aside every weight, everything that hinders. You know, there's a lot of things in life that we might do that aren't wrong. They could even be good things, at least in the, in the right setting. But maybe they're not always the best. Maybe they're not always keeping our focus where it needs to be. And sometimes I think that we say yes to things that are good or things that are okay at the expense of things that are better. And so I want us to think about that, that if if I'm saying yes to something that is okay, and in essence that makes me say no to something that is better, something that may not build me up spiritually the way it should, is what I'm saying yes to. And I refuse to get rid of that because I say, well, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. I have to wonder how that looks in God's eyes. And at what point if God's saying, you need to get rid of this so you can say yes to something better, at what point does it become a sin issue for us? Moving on, I'd like to look just briefly then at verses 13 and 14. Here the Apostle Paul gives us the reason why we're to say no to certain things and yes to others. He says it's because of a future hope. The hope in the expected appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're living this life in preparation for that appearing. Whether it's His return or whether it's when He comes to take us out of this life and we pass on. 
we're living in preparation of that day. So that we're prepared when He comes to be with Him, to live with Him. And when He comes, He's coming for those who have said yes. Excuse me, I'm reading my notes wrong. When He comes, He won't be coming to receive those who have said yes to ungodliness and worldly lusts. But rather, He's going to be coming for those that have said no to those things. Those that have said no to ungodliness and worldly lust, so that in turn they could say yes to the things of God. Yes to living godly lives. Yes to being more like Him. See, Jesus came the first time as a sacrifice so that He could redeem us from or redeem us out of the life of iniquity, the life of living for the lusts of the flesh and the pleasures of this world. The second time He comes, He'll be coming to receive those who by the power of God's grace, that enabling power that God has offered freely to each one of us, those that by, that by that power have said no to those things of the flesh and the world and said yes to God. That's such a challenge to me. It's a challenge I need to say no to everything that would in any way hinder my relationship with the Lord, would in any way lead me away from, the, from Him or would make me say no to anything that He wants me to say yes to. So I ask you this morning, are you exercising God's grace and the power to say no so that you can say yes to Him and His ways? God bless you as we go through life and as we say no to self in this world and as we say yes to him, we have a song.